think we're taxing this uh, the memory of this stupid thing too much. <laughs> it shouldn't be because this is a Mac. All right. Okay. Ready to go? Yes, ma'am. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the newest episode of Rabbit Holes Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Elise. And I'm your other host, Andy. And welcome to this very special Christmas episode of Rabbit Holes Podcast. Yes. Merry Christmas, everybody. And or happy Yule. Hanukkah and happy Kwanzaa or Yule or whatever it is you're celebrating this week, yes. if anything. Well, or if you're like me and you're just trolling it and staying at home and refusing to acknowledge the outside existence happy time off work to you <laughs> happy happy hermitist hermit's day <laughs> Ooh, i like it I'm, I'm gonna coin that as the new festivus yeah <laughs> or christmas <again. laughs> uh, that has a, a certain cachet to it already so i'll leave that for the the oc fans out there <laughs> Yes, which I do. <clears throat> I do talk about that in one of my in my Christmas blog post, Christmas TV episodes and special blog post. Blog post. Yes, I I chuckled as I read that because I completely agree that the Christmas episodes, Christmaka episodes, are the best of that show. Yes, and Seth is the best of that show. So of course. <laughs> So on today's uh, episode, we have some interesting Christmas-themed rabbit holes to take you down. So uh, we talked about what it is we're going to be sharing with you and decided that it would make most sense if Andy went first today. Yes. So I am doing just a couple of little Christmassy history lessons on the things that we now know and those traditions that we follow all the time. I talk about my favorite Christmas movies, which is National Lampoons and Meet Me in St. Louis, and my favorite TV specials, which is Doctor Who and Mr. Bean, plus a few other specials that people should definitely check out on my blog posts, so go to the website and check those out. And uh, I said, because I, I, we were originally planning to get together and record these, and I said, we will definitely try to find a Christmas episode of, Gil of Golden Girls, because yes. uh, Elise and I are big Golden Girls fans, and I'm sure we're going to do that when we actually get together. Yeah. <laughs> so I've got a couple of Christmassy history rabbit holes. So do you ever wonder where Santa and the imagery around him comes from? Mm -hmm. No? Well, I'm going to tell you. Anyway. <laughs> the man who is Santa is based on was St. Nicholas, a bishop who lived in the 4th century in a place called Myra in Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. I probably pronounced that wrong, but whatever. Um, he was a very rich man, and he was very kind. I guess his parents died when he was young and left him a bucket of money but he was very generous with his money and he liked to give uh, and had a reputation for helping the poor and giving secret gifts to people who needed it there are several unconfirmed no shit it's like the fourth century legends but <laughs> one of the famous stories may explain where the custom of hanging stockings and putting presents in them comes from the story is that a poor man had three daughters who could not get married because they did not have the necessary dowry. 
So Nicholas mm-hmm. secretly dropped a bag of gold down the chimney and into the house. The bag fell into a stocking that was hung by the fire to dry. This gold allowed the oldest daughter to marry. When it came time for the second daughter to marry, Nicholas dropped another bag. When it came time for the third daughter to marry, the uh, father was determined to find out who was giving him this amazing gift. So he hid by the fire each night until the third bag of money was dropped. Nicholas begged the man not to tell anybody because he did not want to bring attention to himself. But you know, that didn't work because it's like a tiny town. And like, I probably not that tiny, but you know, small town living back in the day, they didn't have like phones and internet, (laughs) just town gossip, which we talked about a while ago. (laughs) Um, So the secret got around and uh, everybody, and then when other secret gifts started appearing, they just assumed it was Nicholas. So fair enough. How did this Turkish guy become a fat white man called Santa? Well, <laughs> Northern Europe after the Reformation and the 16th century, stories about a saint became really unpopular. But someone needed to bring presents to kids. So in the UK, he became Father Christmas. In France, he became Pierre Noël. Germany became Christmas kind, a golden-haired baby with wings. So they went Ooh. a very different direction in, in old school Germany. Yeah. In the U.S., Chris Kringle and later Dutch settlers took the stories of St. Nicholas and Chris Kringle and merged them together to create what we now know as Santa. St. Nicholas became popular again in the Victorian era when writers, poets, and artists rediscovered the old stories. So what we come to think of Santa was definitely really gauged from the 1823 A Visit from St. Nicholas or as we know it Twas the Night Before Christmas poem that was published. This poem gave St. Nicholas a signature look, the eight reindeer which actually, did you know all those reindeers are girls? Because female reindeer don't lose their antlers. So since Uh, they have antlers they have to be lady reindeer. But yes, again, yeah. uh, the imagery of eight women carrying a white privileged man behind them as they do all the hard work. Not at all shocking. <laughs> I know. Uh, over the years, uh, the UK Father Christmas and the American Santa Claus became one and the same. And now we know that and, you know, what we know as Santa was pretty much formed. So. There are some differences in different countries, but uh, mostly he lives in the North Pole or Lapland, depends on where you're from. He travels to the sky on a sleigh being filled by, as I said, female reindeer. He comes down the chimney at night and delivers presents, and he sees you when you're sleeping, which is creepy. It really is. Like, why are you so obsessed with us? Come on. But also, what are we doing in our sleep that like, could either render us on the naughty list? We're just sleeping. Mm, speak for yourself, but right? go on. <laughs> and he's not seen in my dreams. So there's this urban legend that says the traditional Santa look, including the red suit, was created by Coca-Cola. That's not true. Oh. Uh, yes. So in January 1863, the magazine Harper's Weekly published the first illustrations of St. Nick, St. Nicholas by Thomas Nass. He continued to draw Santa every year for the next 20 years. This is when Santa really started to develop his big tummy and the style of the red and white outfit he wears today. Nass designed Santa's look on some historical information about St. Nicholas and the poem A Visit from St. Nicholas. 
Coke did not start using the Santa, their Santa in advertising until 1920. And even they admit they did not hmm. create the look. Hmm. So where did mall Santas come from? Well, no one's entirely sure, but even in the 1840s, stores began to advertise holiday shopping. So holiday shopping and the Christmas season shopping and all the madness that comes with it is not new. Right. I know, like, we like to think that we've created a lot of new stuff, but we really haven't. So the whole war on Christmas actually goes back to our forefathers, and Fox News really needs to cool it on blaming us. Yes. So <laughs> thousands of children and their parents in, 19, in the 1940s, late 1940s, uh, visited a Philadelphia store to see a life-size models of Santa. And in the early 1890s, the Salvation Army started to dress up men as Santa and sending them out on street corners of New York to collect money to raise for the charity. That's where the kettle campaign comes from. And it some right. feels that that between the life-size models of Santa bringing in thousands of kids and their parents, obviously, and although it's the 1840s, so maybe not. Um, and I just mean that children were probably far more free range than they are today. <laughs> in the 1840s. And then in and then with uh, the Salvation Army doing the kettle with the, the dressed up Santas sort of created that sort of mall Santa aesthetic. Mm-hmm. So that is sort of the birth of Santa. So it goes back really long. Like it's not all that new. Coke did not create Santa. It just definitely popularized that look, I think, a little bit more. Like they still use that classic Santa look right but then again Santa's kind of classic anyway so really what were we gonna do other than change him back to a man from turkey i was gonna say like the coke santa is so white he's almost see-through like he's very very pale that is true (laughs) well he does live in the north pole it's not like you won't get much of a tan they still have the sun up there for like three months out of the year not this time of the year that's what i mean like three months of the wind burn though this is true. I love that the rosy cheeks, I just assume it's windburn. Of course. <laughs> or it's all the eggnog with extra nog. Hmm. <laughs> Did you see the Beaverton post on the Christmas traditions? Uh, no, I don't. I might have, but I, I don't. How they like to take their eggnog, which is by doing a line of nutmeg, nutmegs, Coke style, and then shooting <laughs> three shots of rum. <laughs> yeah that makes sense (laughs) so when i told dan i was gonna do this sort of like history stuff he's like okay so please find out why we started cutting down trees and bringing them into our house and decorating them there he's like who who was like this sounds like a good idea so this is my next one so this might actually kind of be short but uh so evergreen fir trees have traditionally been used to celebrate winter festivals, pagan and Christians for thousands of years. Pagan used branches of it, the fir trees and other evergreen trees to decorate their homes during the winter solstice because it made them think of spring to come. The Roman used fir trees to decorate their temples at the festival of Saturnalia, which I almost did because that's a whole level of debauchery that <laughs> we will never understand. Christians used it as a sign of everlasting life with God. When fir trees were first used as Christmas trees, it was probably began about a thousand years ago in Northern Europe. So again, 
we are not inventing the wheel here. The funny thing is, when I was reading a lot of this stuff, it's, you know, so hard to tell, like, exactly who started it, because it's so long ago. Like, you know, it's not exactly the most, you know, 300 BC is not exactly the most, you know, recorded period of time. We've been St. Nicholas yeah. alive. So, many early trees seem to have been hung from the ceiling. So, the upside-down tree is not an new idea. <laughs> Again. We're really thinking we're clever, right? Yeah. <laughs> Other early Christmas trees across many parts of Northern Europe were cherry or hawthorn plants that were placed into pots uh, and hopefully brought into the house to flower at Christmas. So if you couldn't afford uh, a plant, people made pyramids out of wood that were decorated to look like a tree with paper, apples, and candles. Pyramid trees were meant to be like a paradise tree that was used in medieval German mystery or miracle plays that were acted out at churches at Christmas Eve. And these would be sort of brought around from home to home as opposed to like living in somebody's home all year round. These strange pyramid trees. So artificial trees do not start in the 50s. No. I really don't. <laughs> like, like, I mean, some of these ones, too, like I'll talk about. So the title of the first place to have a Christmas tree or a New Year's Eve tree and New Year's Eve celebration is contested. Both Tilium in Estonia and Riga in Latvia claim the honor. Uh, little known about both trees, but Tilium, Tilium, claims that Brotherhood of Blackheads, hmm. yeah, that's a terrible name, it was uh, the Brotherhood of Blackheads were a group of unmarried men, usually merchants, ship owners, some sort of better, like the higher echelons of society, the unmarried men would be called mm -hmm. the Brotherhood of Blackheads. So mm -hmm. um, they would, they put up their Apparently, Tillium is claiming that the Brotherhood of Blackheads put up their tree in the town square in 1441, danced around it, and then set it alight. Hmm. Yeah, burned it. Uh, Riga has the same story, but it was put up in 1510. So, but neither one can actually claim, like, really prove that they had it. So I guess that's why it's contested. These trees not have, may not have been trees at all, but more like a pole or a paradise tree or a wooden tree-shaped candelabra. Hmm. And they were sort of satellite, like, think Yule log. Right. I mean, that would certainly add spice to the tradition now, if at the end of the year, rather than taking down your ornaments or throwing out your tree, you just light that bitch on fire and uh, enjoy. That is true. So... Start a new tradition, people. <laughs> so, when did we start bringing them inside? So, there's two, there's actually three legends, but I'll talk about two of them because the other one's really boring. Uh, so, <laughs> so, one of them might have been the German preacher Martin Luther. Uh, a story is told that one night before Christmas, he was walking through the forest and looked up to see the stars shining through the tree branches. It was so beautiful that he went home and told his children that it reminded him of Jesus, who left the stars of heaven to come to earth at Christmas. Some people say that uh, the same, so his first tree was the same as the Riga tree, but it wasn't because that was actually decades later. 
-hmm. He was actually decades later. Mm-hmm. Also, there is the story that of St. Boniface of Crediton, a village in Devon, UK. He left England and traveled to Germany to preach to the pagan German tribes and convert them to Christianity. He said that he'd come across a group of pagans about to sacrifice a young boy while worshipping an oak tree. In anger and to stop the sacrifice, St. Boniface is said to have cut down the oak tree, and to his amazement, a young fir tree magically sprung up from the roots of said oak tree. St. Boniface took this as a sign of the Christian faith, and his followers decorated the tree with candles so that St. Boniface could preach to the pagans at night. I hear a little bit of disbelief in your voice, Andy. I know. There's a third one is all about a poor forester's family who opened their home to a poor little lost boy that they found standing on their doorstep and the next morning it turned out to be Jesus. (laughs) You know, as he do, Jesus just roams around, you know. (laughs) So in Germany, a lot of these uh, uh, trees really do uh, originate from Germany, I find, like our sort Mm -hmm. of modern tradition, I guess. So the first Christmas trees were dedicated with edible things such as gingerbread, gold-covered apples. Then glassmakers started making special small ornaments similar to those decorations used today. And in 1605, an unknown German wrote, At Christmas, they set up fir trees in the parlors of Sandsburg and hang thereupon roses cut out of many colored paper, apples, wafers, gold foils, sweets, etc. So they put a lot of edible stuff on it. Which makes sense. Yeah. At first, a figure of baby Jesus was placed at the top of the tree. Then over time, it changed to the angel or fairy or the star that represented the star that the wise men saw. In my house, you have a very drunk angel who looks like she's about to fall off. And then our downstairs... (laughs) Yeah, I know. She's she's looking rough. I got to fix her before she falls. And then downstairs, we have a top hat, like from a snowman. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. It works well because we don't have a ton of a ceiling space downstairs. Right. So the first Christmas tree came to Britain sometime in the 1830s. They, were very, they became very popular in 1841 when Prince Albert, Queen Victoria's German husband, had a Christmas tree set up at Windsor Castle. In 1848, a drawing of the Queen's Christmas tree at Windsor Castle was published in the Illustrated London News. The drawing was republished in Goody's Lady Book in Philadelphia in December 1850, but they removed the Queen's crown and Prince Albert's mustache to make it look more American. (laughs) I loved how they were like, yeah, we gotta make this look more American, so we're gonna take (laughs) her crown off. The publication of the drawing helped the Christmas tree to become popular in the US and the UK. And also in Victorian times, they would decorate the Christmas tree with candles to represent stars. And in many parts of Europe, candles are still used to decorate Christmas trees. And also to give firefighters something to do with the holiday times. Yes, we will talk about uh, candles and insurance companies in a minute. Quick note that, do you remember tinsel? Do you remember tinsel of the 80s that would get everywhere and you'd be vacuuming that shit up in July? Uh, yeah, but in our house, um, we always knew it was holiday season because uh, the cat would eat the tinsel and then would have a strand sticking out her butt. 
So we would have to like chase her around and try to like pull it out. And that was guest family tradition for quite some time. Nope, cats and dogs. We didn't have any animals, so it was just like you'd, you know, move the bed to vacuum uh, in July, or you know, like you do a deep clean, your spring cleaning, mm-hmm. and you'd be like, "Where the f- how did Tinsel get into this bedroom?" But it was so invasive. <laughs> um, tradition of Tinsel comes from Eastern Germany or the Ukraine, and are also the stories of the Christmas spider also are in Finland and. Uh, Scandinavia so it was considered good luck to have a spider in your Christmas tree Ew, not in my house I'll tell you that much there was versions of the story that involved a poor family who couldn't afford to decorate a tree for Christmas and so when the children go to sleep on Christmas Eve a spider covered the tree in cobwebs and then on Christmas morning the cobwebs magically turn into silver and gold strands hmm so in some of those places, you still find, like, spiderweb uh, Christmas ornaments. Oh, okay. Because of the stories that, like, the spider brought this family good luck. I don't care how much gold or silver a spider leaves me. It is not welcome in my home. And uh, I will kill it on sight. So just fair warning to all the spiders within earshot of me at this moment. Your days are numbered. So Christmas tree lights. Christmas yes. lights, I guess, in general. In 1880, the famous inventor, a.k.a. stealer of ideas, Thomas Edison, (laughs) put some of his new electric light bulbs around his office. And in 1882, Edward Johnson, who was a colleague of Edison's, hand-strung red, white, and blue bulbs together and put them on his tray in his New York apartment. And then there was uh, two additional strings of 28 lights mounted on the ceiling. So that was sort of the first real Christmas light string. In 1890, the Edison Company published a brochure offering offering lighting services for Christmas. And in 1900, another Edison advert offered bulbs which you could rent along with their lighting systems for the use over Christmas. There are records in a dairy from 1891 where settlers in Montana used electric lights on a tree. However, most people couldn't easily use electric lights at that time because electricity wasn't widely installed in homes. But if you wanted to, say, get one of these sets of Edison Christmas lights and you was rich, you could do that. And it would cost you about $300 per tree back then. So that's like $2,000 per tree now. So imagine. Holy shit. Imagine me. That would be $4,000 to light up my two Christmas trees. Nope. Not worth it. Kids, we're going out. We're going to find a log to burn. Call it a day. Electric, well, then that's why people lit it up with candles and then burnt their houses down. Uh, <laughs> electric tree lights first became widely um, known in the U.S. in 1895 when President Grover Cleveland had the tree in the White House decorated with lights as his young daughter liked them. And the tradition of the National Christmas Tree on the White House lawn started in 1923 with President Calvin Coolidge. So the first commercially available electric string lights, which most people could afford, it was still hella hella expensive, by the way, um, was advertised in 1903 when a string of 24 lights cost $12 back then, or you could rent lights from $1.50. I couldn't find a calculator online that would convert 
1903 to like 2018 money, mm-hmm. but I could find one that would um, convert 1913. So I put in $12 in 1913 to give us an idea, and that one string of lights was still $500. <laughs> nope. So like kids were no. Nope. It was more affordable, but who could still afford that anyway? In 1885, the hospital in Chicago burned down because of candles on a Christmas tree, which, as we said, is probably not such a fantastic idea. I mean, I'm surprised it took that long, quite frankly, for something serious to burn down. Well, in 1908, insurance companies in the U.S., I guess, banded together and tried to get a law made that would ban candles from being used on Christmas trees because of how many fires they caused. However, people still used Christmas uh, candles to light Christmas trees, and there were even more fires. (laughs) So in 1917, a fire from a Christmas tree candle in New York gave a teenager called Albert Sendaka an idea. His family had came from Spain, and their business was making novelty wicker bird cages that lit up. Albert thought of using the lights in long strings and also suggested painting the bulbs bright colors like red and green. In the following years, he and his brothers formed, and wait for it, the Noma Electric Company, which became oh. very famous name in Christmas lights. I mean, I'm pretty sure all of Canadian Tire is like Noma right now, like brought to you by Noma. I know, that's what Dan and I were saying when I when I came up with this. So, like, you think of Noma and you think of Canadian Tire, but actually that company has been around for 101 years making Christmas tree lights. Like, making them. <laughs> so, there's a few more places that made lights, but let's face it, out of all of this, the Noma tree, the Noma company is probably the biggest. The big one. The big one. So the most, so here's some random records. So there's your sort of history of the Christmas tree and the Christmas tree lights. There's lots of famous Christmas trees because like every town has the lighting of the Christmas tree. So you have like Mm -hmm. the Christmas tree in Trafalgar Square in London. You have Rockefeller Center. You have um, other places. There's the White House on the lawn. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, the Morewood lighting Christmas tree is quite big. And Morewood is the village two doors down from me that has a population of maybe 26 people. <laughs> yeah, that's the one I drive through. <laughs> exactly. <part>. Yep. <laughs> so the record for most Christmas trees chopped down in two minutes is 27. And that belongs to the, I'm sure, lovely Erin. Lavoy from the U.S. She set the record in 2008. Hmm. How big were the trees, though? I mean, I don't know. And did she use a chainsaw and axe? I have no idea. To yeah. Cut trees. <laughs> I mean, I'm not taking it away from her. It's impressive, but I'm just saying, like, there's a big difference between a six-inch diameter stump and a two-inch diameter stump. I know. Also, she probably wasn't too picky on how, like, like. It probably didn't care if it had to stand up again, so... Exactly. So she just, like, body check them, like, Kiefer Sutherland style to take it down? Like, what are we talking here? <laughs> so, also, artificial trees have been around for a long time, like we talked about with the wooden pyramid trees, but they became very popular in the early 20th centuries. In the Edwardian period, Christmas trees are made from colored ostrich feathers were popular at fashionable parties. Hmm. And around 1900, there was even a short fashion for white trees. So those colored Christmas trees are also not that new. 
I, I was going to say 1900 and 1980, <laughs> both of them. So over the years, artificial trees have been made from feathers, paper mache, which if you're lighting those with candles, that seems like a really, really bad idea. That's a death wish right there. Yeah, metal, glass, and many types of plastic. So Dan and I were at um, Canadian Tire just doing some last minute shopping. And we saw that they had this like turquoise, like bright turquoisey blue fake Christmas tree in like the mm-hmm. corner. And we passed by it. And we both said, that is a hella, like hella ugly tree. So we go and we go to another store. And as we're coming back to our truck, we, uh, we actually saw someone coming out with that display tree in their cart. I mean, I would just stop them because I would want to know everything about them and like who hurt them in their life to arrive at this spot. Okay, you're the woman who like lobbied for years for the office, the old office to buy a purple Christmas tree. Yeah, because the corporate color is purple and it would be an office Christmas tree. At home, I still have a green Christmas tree. I still think it's genius. So I think you guys should definitely pick up a purple Christmas tree. <laughs> so that's my stories. So there's your tradition of how we ended up with Santa, how we had stockings, how we have Christmas trees, and Christmas tree lights, and that the Noma Christmas tree, the Noma tree company or Christmas light company, whatever, it is like 101 years old. Hmm. See, I was thinking in December, if I was going to be writing a blog post, that I would talk about how uh, Coca-Cola has given us the visual for Christmas. And now I'm glad I didn't, because Andy would have slapped my wrist and told me I was a dummy. So (laughs) I'm glad we've addressed it. Well, I mean, you're sort of not wrong. You're also not sort of right. It's just as weird. Like, they didn't create it, but they really, like, sold it. Madman style, I guess. True. I mean... That is the the iconic Santa Claus that we think of now. He ain't some skinny Turkish guy, that's for sure. Mm-mm. Nope. At least not here in this part of the world. Um, I'm surprised you didn't touch on Krampus at all. A lot of podcasts are doing Krampus. It's true. Uh, and that's why we drink. I think last year's Christmas episode, Emily touched on Krampus, and it was pretty funny. So go check that out. And uh, if you are a fan of television as i am um the league that old show from fx about guys fantasy league they did an episode entitled uh krampus christmas and uh taco is really big on bringing back krampus as a way of punishing children and i honest to god every time i watch it have to stop the show like streaming so i can just laugh and like i hurt my back laughing so hard at the krampus episode every year it's so good. The other side of that coin, uh, Supernatural did their only Christmas episode, I think. They probably have done more than one Christmas episode by this point because there are 23 seasons in whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but they did a, uh, a Krampus Christmas episode. So, how could they not? not funny. Well, of course. <laughs> well, yeah. Not probably overly funny, although knowing the writers, they, and I think it's like an earlier season one. So. So my story this week uh, came from my favorite Christmas tradition for me, which is just to take my time off and spend the entire time reading, which I do nonstop. Uh, And as I read, I listen to music. And uh, usually this time of year, it's classical Christmas music. And so I was listening and Greensleeves came on and that is what inspired my 
uh, rabbit hole for this week. So it's urban legend that Greensleeves was composed by Henry VIII for Anne of Boleyn. Um, and somehow between that and modern times, Greensleeves has been picked up as um, a quasi-holiday song. And it gets played a lot this time of year. But the urban legend isn't quite true. The piece is based off an Italian style of composition that didn't reach England until after Henry's death. So it's more Elizabethan than uh, her father's era. But still, that reminded me of how bonkers Christmas got in the Tudor's court. So this week, I'm going to be talking about how the Tudors celebrated the Christmas holidays. It is still at its root, a religious uh, set of events for them. Actually, it started with Advent. So starting in uh, early December, there'd be a period of fasting. It was more of a subdued period in the court and in the society where there wouldn't be a lot of feasts or anything. And it's a very long, far away, away from where we are now, where every Advent is kind of a chance to have chocolate and candy after dinner every night. Uh, at least that's how it was for me. We weren't a big dessert family, but... December was great because I got an advent calendar and I got to have chocolate every day, even though it was really shitty, crappy chocolate. I didn't care. It was awesome. So it was more of a subdued uh, event in the Tudor court. Um, and it all led up to Christmas Day on the 25th, which started early on in the day with mass, uh, in fact, before dawn. And then, then there would be two additional masses that they would attend during the day keeping in mind that they were still a Catholic country at this time, even after the, the break from Rome, the version of Protestantism that Henry brought in was really pretty Catholic uh, and it was just Protestant around the edges. So there was still quite a lot of uh, religious worshiping going on. During church congregations, they would light tapers and the genealogy of Christ would be sung. And for all of his issues with the church, Henry VIII observed Christmas in a very pious manner throughout his life. Each Christmas day, he would hear mass in his private rooms before going to the procession uh, to the Chapel Royal for Matins, where he himself participated in the service. To him, it was a solemn feast in honor of the nativity. And he was very serious about recognizing the importance of the day, so much so that he passed a law banning all sports on Christmas day, except for archery which is seen as essential to maintaining the country's military strength. So it's a little hard to reconcile the Henry that broke with the church versus the Henry that maintained throughout his entire life a very pious approach to one of these uh, holy days in the calendar. So Christmas would happen and that's when the partying would start. Starting on the day after Christmas is we have the 12 days of Christmas. They were very big in Tudor society and the December 25th, marked the start of the official 12 days. This is the period between the birth of Christ and the coming of the Magi or the three wise men. It begins on Christmas and runs through January 6th, which is known as the Epiphany. Sometimes it's also known as Little Christmas or Three Kings Day. And depending on your current church, your current religion, um, some people actually don't recognize the 25th as being the important holy day in this whole Mishigas of a week, and in fact, they celebrate Christmas on the 6th of January. The 12 days of Christmas were a time for communities to come together and celebrate. And during that time, those who worked on the land would stop and spinners would be banned from spinning. Work wouldn't start again until Plow Monday, which is the first Monday after the 12th night. 12th night isn't just the name of a play that involved cross-dressing. Um, 
in Shakespeare's world. Uh, it ends the 12 days of Christmas, and it's the most important feast day of the year. It's also the Eve of the Epiphany, which is the day when Jesus was revealed to be the Son of God. Very much like us, this time of the year for the Tudors was really big around food. It was a way to celebrate and come together and uh, have a chance to share and an excuse to be together in the same room. So in the four weeks leading up to Christmas, like I said, it was a time of fasting. And then Christmas Eve was still rough for them since they couldn't eat uh, eggs or cheese or meats. But the centerpiece on that day would be a boar's head during the meal. Like, to me, that's not exactly all that appealing, but... Uh, think a giant pig with an apple in its mouth. That's where the imagery kind of started was at this era. Even that does not appeal to me. I guess when you don't have Netflix, stuff like that can be fun. I, I don't know. <laughs> well, going back to you said about the December 5th, that's what we call um, old Christmas day. So traditionally we wouldn't take our Christmas trees down. You mean January 5th? Until old Christmas day. Yeah, January 5th, sorry, January 5th. So after Christmas day, where there's still a reduced diet at the start of the 12 days of Christmas, that's where shit got wild with the food and people just went all out and it was a big feast. Hosts and hostesses would serve mutton, pork, veal, pickled pig's feet and ears, cheese and apples. And these are all items that were associated with Tudor feasts in general, not specifically with Christmas, but they really ratcheted the dial up to 11 during the Christmas season and these 12 days and would just go nuts with the eating. One of the most famous and popular dishes during the 12 days was minced pie. And I have a quote here from a 1545 cookbook that describes it as mutton or beef must be fine minced and seasoned with salt and pepper and a little saffron to color it, suet or marrow, a good quality, a little vinegar, prunes, great raisins and dates, take the fat off the broth of powdered beef and you will have paste royale take butter and yolk of eggs and so temper the flour to make the paste. So I'm not a great big fan of even modern day mince pie and this isn't selling me on a return to that tradition. <laughs> God, no. So in essence, the dish had 13 ingredients and it was meant to symbolize Jesus and his apostles. And the mutton represented the shepherd Gabriel appearing to announce the birth of Christ. So I think we're a little bit mixed up in our imagery here. I mean, the 25th being the birth of Jesus and yet the 13 ingredients to represent his later life with his apostles kind of gets all over the place, but I'm gonna let him have it. Christianity does love its mixed metaphors. It really does. <laughs> so here in North America, at least, turkey is kind of the centerpiece of the holiday meals. And Henry VIII was one of the first people to have turkeys as part of his Christmas feast after the bird was introduced to Britain in the 1520s, but that was still only a meal reserved for the rich. More traditional fare included peacocks, swans, larks, partridges, quails, roast beef, and prawn pasties. And I always saw drawings or pictures or representations of swans being eaten in Tudor courts, like in movies and stuff like that. And it wasn't until I was actually in London and had a chance to meet a couple of swans that I realized why. Those things are fucking huge. And jerks. And giant jerks as well. So not only do they look like good eatins, you just you get pissed off enough at them that putting them in an oven sounds like a really good idea. 
So I don't blame them. I have a perfect picture to go with the social media for this week of a swan in yeah. London. Like, I've got his wings out that I took when I was there in April. So they are not pleasant They're creatures. Huge. Yeah, and no fucking crotchety too. Uh, another favorite favorite meal of the Tudors at this time was something known as the Christmas pie. Oddly enough, it was coffin shaped. Uh, it was a pie crust containing a turkey stuffed with a goose, which was stuffed with a chicken, which was stuffed with a partridge, which was stuffed with a pigeon. So very early Turduncan on steroids. Again, with our, we think we invented shit, but it's been here for a long time. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> this was often served with hare, game birds, and wild fowl. So you're going to get real bunched up eating all that protein and not any enough roughage going with it, as far as I'm concerned. Once you got through your main meal, uh, next up was dessert. Popular dish at the time was called Twelfth Cake. It was eaten on the last night of the 12 days, and it was basically a fruitcake with a hidden object in it, like a coin or a dried bean. And if you found the, cake, the item in the cake, then you became the king or the queen of the evening, and the host or hostess for the night's entertainments. So again, this is still um, a tradition uh, now, but I associate this more with uh, King's Cake around, I think it's Easter in kind of New Orleans, but uh, still. We did a, for us, it was pancake. Like they would be money put in pancakes, sometimes cakes for birthdays, oh. but pancakes would often have money in them for um, hmm. like for before Lent. Right. Yes. But like at Easter, like that time of year, not yeah, Christmas. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, not surprising going by the size of them, but Henry VIII loved to eat. So feasts at Christmas were really big deals. It wasn't uncommon to have over a thousand people sitting down to eat with the court when he was uh, the king. Feasts could last more than seven hours and meats were carried out to diners, often with a big show. There could be upwards of 20 distinct dishes on offer, and they were often elaborately sculpted castles or animals made out of all types of things, not just the sugar marzipan castles that we think of, but everything. So you'd have a giant marsh, uh, mashed potato castle? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Although, no, potatoes didn't come into the Elizabethan era. That's and true, even I then, guess. they were devil's food because they grew in the ground. <laughs> No. <laughs> How did the Irish like, you know, they must have dealt with that at some point. Uh, that came in later in the seven mid 1700s, late 1700s. They adopted the potato as their staple food. But yeah. <laughs> Following the feast at court, the leftover food would be given out to the poor in the area. Something I think modern society needs to be a little bit better at. Uh, leftovers from as many as 24 courses could be handed out and it was expected that the royal kitchens would always cook way too much in order to both impress the guests and to share it with the poor afterwards so mad props to the tutors for actually doing something a, a little bit better for their society than we're doing it's not like in kansas where they're throwing bleach on leftover food to prevent it from being given to the homeless no a lot of places now like because it used to be a public uh, public health thing that they couldn't give mm -hmm. away food, but I think they're starting to change the rules and stuff or something. Yeah. So I have here a list of some of the traditions that was that were common in the Tudor court. 
and some of them overlap a little bit with yours that we talked about earlier. So we have the Yule log. Um, on Christmas Eve, a family or a um, community would go out and find the biggest log possible that they could in the nearby forest. They would bring it into the house and decorate it with ribbons and then keep it burning for all 12 days of Christmas. For luck, you kept some of the charred remains for the year and used it to light the next year's Yule log. Also, there was a tradition known as Boy Bishop, uh, during which um, a boy would be chosen from the church's choir to lead the community in religious services, with the exception of the Mass itself. They'd raise money for the community uh, to do certain works uh, for the group, and then they would bless the community. But it was banned under Henry because he saw it as making fun of the church, and then it came back later under Mary and Elizabeth. My favorite tradition out of the Tudor court, though, is the Lord of Misrule or the Master of Mary Disports. So the idea was to turn the social structure on its head so that a commoner would be named the Lord of Misrule and get to boss around the wealthy for uh, the evening uh, during the celebration. Even the king had to obey the commands of the Lord of Misrule. And the article I was reading gave the example of Will Waynesbury, who was the Lord of Misrule in the first year of Henry VIII's reign and asked the king for five pounds towards his expenses, which amused Henry greatly. Uh, as part of their shtick, they would wear scarves and ribbons, laces, jewels, and bells. They'd be given trains of heralds, magicians, and fools in fancy dress to um, help entertain the guests at the feast or the dinner. There was even a very serious coronation ceremony that happened, after which the Lord of Misrule could choose the servants that he wanted to wait upon him. And they were responsible for, quote, supervising the entertainments and generally causing chaos. The entertainments they supervised were often rowdy and chaotic. For example, in 1583, the, quote, youth of Wooten near Oxford got into trouble with the archdeacon for letting the festivities get out of hand. So there was still an expectation of being a little on the socially acceptable side with the realization that... Once you get youths hopped up on power and alcohol, it was going to devolve pretty quickly. So not a lot's changed there either. Wassailing is an old tradition that happened um, often in the Tudor court. A wooden bowl containing up to a gallon of hot ale, apples, spices, and sugar would be served to guests. Common and aristocratic people would share a drink together. And at the bottom of the wassail bowl, they would put a crust of bread and at the end of the wassail, it would be presented to the most important person present. And the article I was reading about this said it may be the origin of the word toast when we give toasts of drinks, because you're toasting to the most important person in the room, in essence. Up next are Christmas carols. It's a way to celebrate the nativity story, which is why it was very popular in the Tudor court. Winkin DeWard's Christmas Carols, published in 1521, is the early recorded published collection and includes the boar's head carol, describing the ancient tradition of sacrificing a boar and presenting its head at the Yuletide feast. So once again, we're back to giant pig head on the center of your table being the focus of everyone's eating environment. Ugh. <laughs> when it comes to decorating, as Andy, you mentioned, the Christmas tree is... Uh, probably of German origin around this time, so it wasn't very popular in England. Instead, people decorated their homes with holly, ivy, mistletoe, box, laurel, and yew. And a lot of these are carry through from the old Celtic traditions, the old um, 
kind of pagan rituals and pagan rites that were brought into the Tudor society as well. Also common as part of the decorating scheme were dried fruits, berries, and candles. So once again, everything old is new again, even so far back as the Tudor age. And you were talking about Victorians using the same kind of decorating scheme. So even they were recycling old uh, decorations. Finally, one of the most popular traditions was to put on plays. Usually on Christmas Eve, mummers or actors would perform plays showing St. George, who was the patron saint of England, slaying a dragon. And these would go on for the whole 12 days. Mummers are still around today. Andy, being from Newfoundland, is probably more familiar with them than I am. But uh, so why don't you tell us about mummers? <laughs> oh, goodness. It's been a long time since I've, I've uh, been a mummerin. I don't know if I've actually, actually been a mummerin, but uh, they used to be very popular. Uh, not so much where I grew up. Um, which is predominantly English uh, Protestant, uh, but very popular where my mom grew up in uh, a more Irish, well, all Irish Catholic <laughs> community. Um, so people would get dressed up, uh, often men in women's clothing. You'd cover your face, usually with like a pillowcase or like you think about it. Uh, a toque all the way rolled down with like eye holes cut out mm -hmm. of it like a ski mask idea and the whole thing is you try to disguise yourself so that people didn't recognize you ah. and then you'd come you'd go from house to house usually people would be playing instruments borums uh the ugly stick which is very popular in newfoundland so it's like a stick with bottle caps and you shake it and you can play it fiddles that sort of thing and they go from house to house where you'd sing you'd have a couple of dances you'd have some drinks and some food and then you'd take the party and you'd keep going and this would go for days um, we'll go for the 12 days of Christmas and right. you'd have uh, people would then maybe add on and they'd go mummering in different houses and it's just a tradition of, of entirely, I'm not entirely sure what it was supposed to be, I think it's something about spirits trying to I'm not entirely sure how it got started but it's always fun because it's like, you know, they're wearing their underwear inside their clothes and bras <laughs> stuffed and just ridiculousness uh, and trying to like, you know pretend you're not you know who you are so you're uh, i would be steven from uh, shoal harbor as opposed to you know andy from dildo so <laughs> it was a lot of fun because it's a lot of music it's a, it's a lot of parties it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of festivity a lot of drinking yeah you know, ah. so so the beaverton article today about mummering being the newfoundland version of the purge doesn't sound like it's far off only nobody gets killed but yes. <laughs> Uh, so the last little bit to talk about in terms of the Christmas traditions and the Tudor courts for me is to talk about where and when politics kind of came into this. Uh, Christmas was a time when the court and hangers-on had to be present, so a lot of politicking occurred. The whole Catherine, Henry, Anne love triangle was extremely fraught during the holidays. Although the king would command Anne's presence at the holidays at Greenwich, which was where the court usually spent the, um, the festive season, for three consecutive years, she was there but never held an official role. For the sake of appearances, Catherine of Aragon continued to preside over Henry's feasts throughout the 1530 holidays. But by 1531, the tide had turned in Anne's favor. So while she wasn't officially queen yet, she was installed at the queen's lodgings at Greenwich. Uh, but Henry did have her avoid the court's formal Christmas celebration. 
By the next year, though, Anne was queen in all but name and presided over the court festivities. And in fact, there's some speculation that Elizabeth I was conceived while Henry and Anne were making Mary that year, according to the article I read. So we can see Christmas being um, a time where these high dramas are being played out um, and not being able to hide any of it because the entire court has to be there and has to be present. Giving gifts was extremely political. Usually gifts were exchanged on New Year's Day or Twelfth Night, uh, either one of those. And you usually gift your way into power. So all courtiers gave the monarch gifts. And if they were lucky or liked enough that they could expect one in return. And the entire exchange was a very public affair. Accepting a gift if you were the monarch was a public declaration of liking someone while declining was seen as a serious snub. So for example, in 1532, which was the year that they expect Elizabeth was conceived, Henry accepted a gift from Anne, but declined Catherine's gifts. Once again, high politics, high drama going on in front of the entire court. Royals always got the best presents. They were usually gifted with gold or silver plate, jewels, or an exotic beast, which I think is hella awkward. You never give pets as gifts. It's just not a smart idea. But I guess if you're a royal, you have a place to put a lion or a giraffe, so you could take it. Uh, I saw where they put an elephant at uh, the Tower of London in the menagerie, and mm-hmm. that was not a big enough space to put an elephant. Like, I don't even think that space was as big as my bedroom. PETA would lose their shit. <laughs> don't get me started on those guys. Yeah. <laughs> From Britain Express's article on holidays at the Tudor court, there's a story about Elizabeth and this whole uncomfortable gift giving and receiving situation. She was desperate to rid herself of a suitor, uh, the Duke of Anjou in 1551. And so tried to appeal to his cheapness by suggesting that if he headed home before New Year's, he could avoid having to give her an expensive gift. Uh, Instead, he stuck around. He was really in it to win it. And when I say it, I mean her hand in marriage. So he stuck around and instead ended up giving her a jeweled anchored brooch and stayed on until February. So Elizabeth kind of lost that and ended up with an unwanted house guest for longer than she wanted. Once the ceremony of giving the monarch a gift was done, it would be displayed in public so that everyone could see what it was that you had given them. So once again, this very public display of power and if your gift was accepted, where you stood kind of in the pecking order with your fellow peers. The same in reverse, getting gifts from the royals was a sign of where you stood in the political pecking order. The bigger, the more expensive the gift, the better you were liked. So sometimes you would get jewelry or um, plates. If you were very lucky, you would get royal titles and could go on uh, bestowing those to your descendants as they went on. So that is my summary of what Christmas was like in the Tudor court. A little bit uh, crazy around the edges, but still some of the traditions that we see now had their origin or at least very popular even in the Tudor days. Yeah, the whole like, of course it was drama. It was Henry, right? Like his whole life was drama. Yeah. Yes. H for history. Alison Weir has... Mm -hmm. Uh, a bunch of articles that she's just posted on Henry's different Christmases with his different wives. Oh boy. (laughs) 
I have to go off and read those. <laughs> yes. I just saw that post today and I was like, oh, I must tell Elise. Because I'm <laughs> sure there's probably one of them that he didn't even have a Christmas with. Like, there's got to be one that was so short. She didn't even make a Christmas. But, but yeah. It wouldn't surprise me at all. <laughs> but yes. Uh, she has one about Jane because him and Jane Seymour went uh, the year the Thames froze over one year so they drove into the city to go skating but I think Anne wasn't even dead yet so yeah uh yeah I think she was beheaded in May it wouldn't surprise me if Catherine Howard didn't make a full year because she did not know what she was doing in terms of the politicking oh no she was young and dumb (laughs) absolutely Okay, so Florida man, do you want one or A or B? Pick A or B because I've got two. Mm, is one more Christmassy than the other? Neither one of them are Christmassy. I'm sorry, but they're just they're B then. B. Okay, so the title is Florida woman accused of hitting airplane while driving drunk. Oh boy, <laughs> that takes skill. <laughs> So, in Sarasota County, Florida, a drunk driver crashed into a gate at the Brandon Saras- Brandonton Sarasota Airport, drove around inside the tarmac, causing damages to the plane. Deputies say that Mary Dussel was charged with a DUI after Wednesday night's incident, but could face more charges. The airplane's pilot, Jason Kaiser, said he was still confused about what happened. <laughs> no shit, J- Jacob. Sorry, Jacob. <laughs> it's a good question, I guess, about how this happened. It's a good question. I don't think anybody really knows yet, he said. <laughs> Investigators say that she swerved around multiple planes before hitting one. Pilot said she hit the back of the airplane with a flap is and bent it quite a bit. According to the deputies, Dorsal did a damage in about a minute and a half, so fast that airport police weren't able to get to her before she left. <laughs> so... She bailed, and then a tip from a citizen helped deputies track her down. She told deputies she thought she was in Ohio. Holy shit. (laughs) And the deputies also noticed a box of wine in the front seat of her car. Classy. (laughs) Nobody on the plane, and nobody, luckily, was injured. But about $15,000 worth of damage was done to the plane. She had to face some felony charges. So... I'm guessing it's not a very big airport, but yeah, she thought she was in Ohio. She was in Sarasota, Florida, and she had some boxed wine before she drove into, she rammed, sorry, apparently she also rammed through two secure gates at the Universal Flight Services before then running into a plane and then driving away. She did that in a minute and a half. That's, uh, that's really impressive. Did I ever tell you about the time I accidentally drove onto the tarmac of a European airport? (laughs) No. (laughs) Why would you? That's another segue of a story. (laughs) Because my dad was being stubborn and wanted to take out the GPS and was trying to use a map. And the next thing I know, I'm driving on a tarmac in post 9-11 small town airport uh, in Europe in a rented stick shift VW uh, Jetta and screaming at my dad that I'm going to get arrested. It's all his fault. He's going to get arrested with you. 
it was so low key that I didn't even see any airport staff and it was the middle of the day. It was full bright. Uh, I didn't see any airport staff. No one flagged us down and we were not at all apprehended, nor did anyone in authority talk to us. So I can see small airports, something like this happening. (laughs) Although in this case, there wasn't even a security fence or two to go through. (laughs) You were just there. I was just there. I looked up and I was like, this looks like tarmac. What am I doing here? Take out the goddamn GPS. What are we doing? I think we're lost. We're officially lost. It was a rough, rough afternoon. (laughs) So that is it for this afternoon. Uh, We hope that you go off and enjoy some time with your family or your pets or your books, whatever floats your boat and keeps you happy this holiday season and that you are safe and happy. Uh, Andy, you want to tell the people where they can find us? You can find us on our website and read our fantastic blogs. A lot of mine are Christmassy themed. Uh, Elise tells you how to not pack a uh, carry-on bag. And I'll tell you all about Christmas movies and Christmas TV shows uh, to, you know, keep you busy this holiday season. You can see that on our website, rabbitholespodcast.com. You can find us on Instagram at Rabbit Holes Podcast. You can find us on Facebook at Rabbit Holes Podcast page. Those are created by curated by me, and you'll see some great funny photos uh, that I'll be putting up over the Christmas season. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is Rabbit Holes Podcast at Rabbit Holes Pod. Oh, at Rabbit Holes Pod. Sorry, <laughs> I don't have the script in front of me. You're doing great from memory. <laughs> I know. Uh, you can also support us by either going to our Patreon, which you can find us on Patreon's site or on our own site off of the support tab. We have great stuff coming uh, for uh, all of our levels. And you can also support us by buying some merchandise and repping us out in the big bad world. You can either find that on Redbubbles and search uh, Rabbit Holes Podcast, or you can find us on our website at the Merch tab. Mm-hmm. And over this holiday season, as you may have some free time, please consider heading over to iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're downloading this pod and leaving us with either a good rating or a good review. It helps get our name out there. And also recommend us to a friend. Everyone needs more podcast content in their life. So why don't you tell your friends and family all about us and help us kind of network that way? So uh, as we say goodbye, there's just one more thing to remind you of before we head off to have some Christmas cake and eggnog. And that is to remind you that if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Bye, guys. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.